I'm Leslie Marshall, live from our nation's capital, here on the only true democracy in talk radio. We are so glad to be with Families USA, the voice for healthcare consumers, and uh, the man that makes it all possible for uh, Families USA, and uh, actually for this whole shindig here every year. We're glad to be a part of this, Mr. Pollock. Uh, Ron Pollock's been on the show, not only here live from our nation's capital, but via phone, but it's nice to be face-to-face. Ron Pollock is the founding executive director of Families USA. Now, they're a national organization for healthcare consumers, and they're mission is to achieve high quality affordable health coverage for everyone in the United States. Are we there yet? Has that No, been we're not there, but we're making real progress and hopefully we won't go backwards. That's what this Supreme Court uh, case is all about. So we have made significant progress. Over 11 million people got enrolled in private insurance uh, and a comparable number are getting coverage through the Medicaid program that's been expanded. One out of three people who were uninsured before the Affordable Care Act started to be implemented now have health coverage. So we still got to cover the other two out of three. So we've got a long ways to go, but we're making progress. And what the Supreme Court case is all about is now are we going to go backwards? Are we going to actually withdraw coverage uh, if the Supreme Court rules for the anti-Obamacare folks uh, who have brought this lawsuit? Over 8 million people will lose health insurance. And not only that, but everyone else who has coverage, their premiums are going to skyrocket. And the reason they're going to skyrocket is that when the subsidies, if they got withdrawn, the people who will find a way to get health coverage, they'll beg, borrow, or steal in order to get health coverage, are people who are older and sicker who have a high predictability that they're going to need care. It's the younger, healthier people who are going to say it's not worth it. And so when that happens and we have insurance pools that are composed mainly of older, sicker people, guess what happens to the premiums? They skyrocket. Absolutely. And so I'm afraid that if the court does something that I perceive to be very political uh, and rules in favor of the Obamacare opponents, it's going to have us go backwards. You know, as a former law school dean, as someone who's argued cases in the Supreme Court, I'd like to think the court is going to look at the law, and if they do, and base their decision on the law, I think we'll be all right. Now, I was going to ask you that, you know, because I know that you have presented cases. I know your background, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking you to go to Vegas or anything. Uh, how, how do you think, looking at the composite of this court, looking at uh, the decision that they made in uh, 2012. And for people just tuning in, let's bring everybody up to speed. I'm here with Mr. Ron Pollock. He is founder and director of Families USA, the voice for healthcare consumers. Now, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, a lot of people say they dodged a bullet back in 2012. That's when the Supreme Court upheld the individual mandate. Tomorrow it is facing a second major legal challenge on Wednesday. And uh, this one is to the taxpayer-funded premium subsidies uh, that underpin the entire law. Now, the arguments are going to be heard over whether it's legal to give out the subsidies in 34 states. Most of those don't have the Medicaid expansion, uh, so there's no alternative for these people if they were to lose their health insurance, where the federal government established and runs the insurance exchanges, healthcare.gov. Uh, so the, you know, looking at the composite of the court, looking how they ruled in 2012, looking at the fact that we had a lower court um, uphold this, uh, but the, the Supreme Court is hearing this and, and is, you know, making its decision starting tomorrow. Where do you, what do you think the verdict will be? So let me give you an equivocating response, okay? Okay, okay. Uh, you know, if, if the court uh, looks at the law, I, I think there's no question that uh, the subsidies should continue. 
Here's what troubles me. You know, the court has typical guidelines as to which cases they're going to hear. They don't have to follow the guidelines. They can choose whichever cases they want to, uh, to come up to the uh, court ultimately. But th- three things. One, there is no constitutional issue in this case. Two, there are no differences between the circuit courts of appeals. Usually the court will decide to hear a case if these different circuits yes. are ruling differently. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, there's no difference here. But the third reason, I think, is, is what really scares me, and that is there were two circuit courts of appeals, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals based in Denver. Each of them had the exact same issues in front of them and scheduled for oral argument, and the, nevertheless, the Supreme Court catapulted that yes. and decided to hear the case. That is very surprising. That's highly unusual. So obviously there were at least four justices who wanted to get a hold of this case. And the likelihood is it's the four justices who dissented in the 2012 case. Uh, And so that's worrisome. If those four justices stick together uh, and make a decision, which in my judgment would be a political decision, all they need to do is is get uh, Chief Justice Roberts to join them. Now... If you take a look at how Justice Scalia, conservative Justice Scalia, has written about statutory interpretation, one of the things that you can't miss is using the standards he has written about extensively, we should win this lawsuit. But uh, do I feel like I'd want to bet my house that uh, Justice Scalia will uh, rule in our favor? I'm not sure I want to put up my house. You're here in D.C., though, and there are a lot of people, uh, you know, not just uh, political uh, types, but legal experts, um, you know, who talk about this. Uh, what, you know, what are they saying? Uh, most, most of the dispassionate folks, the f- folks who don't have a position one way or another in terms of this, they think that uh, we will prevail. Um, but everyone knows that, you know, this is a highly contentious Area. We've had over 50 votes in Congress to repeal the legislation. And the plaintiffs in this case actually have been pretty upfront. They said, you know, when we get to the Supreme Court, I think we got a pretty good shot. Uh, and so I, you, you can't count on any outcome here. I, I think the likelihood is we will win, but I'm not going to bet my house on it. Yeah, most, most definitely. Have you ever seen, I mean, you know, as somebody who practiced law, and now as the founder of Families USA, pushback against legislation, you know, in, in the courts and the constant fight. Have, have you ever seen anything like no, this? No, not like this. Not like this. So, you know, you, you take a look at what happened in 1965 with the enactment of Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security Act in 1935. Of course you had opposition, but it has not been as virulent and as long-standing as this is. Now, I believe that if we prevail in the Supreme Court this time, then I think there's one more obstacle, and then yeah. uh, and that obstacle is the 2016 election. Right. Uh, you know, the 2016 election, if you've got a Republican president, Republican Congress, I could see the uh, Affordable Care Act undermined. But I think if we prevail in Supreme Court, uh, it's only the 2016 election that 
uh, prevents this from being stable. And I think ultimately it will become stable. What I don't understand is obviously the pushback comes from the right, uh, from Republicans, whose states will be in in a very difficult position because those governors you know, didn't sign on for the Medicaid expansion. Uh, where are these people going to get insurance? They're going to have to do something about that. And that will be very difficult for them when it's time to be reelected because these are working class people that, you know, and, and over 8 million people is, you know, as you, you had said, it doesn't affect just over 8 million people. It affects many, many more people. Um, and, and this can not only hurt, you know, in gubernatorial elections in the states, but on a national level, those that are up for reelection in a couple of years in the House. So, Leslie, the way I look at it is we will have two health care Americas. You know, one health care America where states have implemented the Medicaid expansion. They're running this, uh, providing uh, these marketplaces and subsidies are being provided. And you've got states that are not doing the Medicaid expansion. And if the Supreme Court withdraws subsidies in the states that haven't run their own marketplaces, you're going to have totally different health care systems. And what's interestingly is the poorest of the poor tend to be in places like the southeast. Yes. And those are the states that have not done the Medicaid expansion, and they have not set up the marketplaces. So we're going to have two healthcare Americas, and the places that need healthcare the most are the ones that won't have it. That's a shame. We'll prevail with the Supreme Court. Ron Pollack, founding executive director of Families USA, the national organization for healthcare consumers. I'm here because of Families USA, the voice for healthcare consumers, at their annual meeting live from our nation's capital, broadcasting right across the street from the Supreme Court. Live here at our nation's capital, across the street from the Supreme Court. At the Families USA, which is the Voice for Healthcare Consumers annual conference. Of course, we are here because there's a huge decision uh, that the Supreme Court is uh, hearing opening arguments for starting tomorrow. And like I said, we're just across the street from there. Um, I don't think I'm going to have um, access to the more conservative members of the court to try and uh, appeal uh, to them. It's more than a pleasure to have with us and have back with us because he's been on the program before and he was here in front of me last year. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. Uh, Ian Milheiser is from CAP, the Center for American Progress. We love the Center for American Progress. Mark Levine, who sits in for me and uh, fills in normally Wednesday's first hour uh, on the show for me, to broadcast from there. And Center for American Progress is great people. Thank you. And you do a lot of great stuff. What do you do at Center for American so Progress? I'm, so a, that folks know. I'm a senior fellow there. I work on uh, constitutional issues. Um, I have a new book um, called Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. So I don't like the Supreme Court that much. Well, I, you know what? I Thank you for plugging your book. I was going to do that. Uh, Let's do it again. Ian Milheiser, and he wrote Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Tomorrow, mm-hmm. this decision could afflict the afflicted. Yeah. Or this could decision could afflict those who were afflicted, and after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, at least more than 8 million people were comforted. Right. Because you deal with constitutional law, mm-hmm. and you have seen the fight against this legislation, mm-hmm. you have seen a bullet dodged in 2012, Right. and you have seen this court do something which some people say is unprecedented, which is, hey, we'll take it on before the lower courts rule entirely. Right. Is that a foreshadowing of things to come and... Afflicting the afflicted. I think it's a reason to be nervous. I I mean, we have a very conservative court. We have a court that has shown a willingness to go very far in pushing arguments that 10 years ago when there were slightly different justices, if you had told me these arguments, I would have thought they were comically dumb. 
Um, and yeah, they did take this case sooner than we thought it did. All of those are bad signs. That said, you know, I'm not convinced we're sunk. I'm not convinced we're sunk for two reasons. You know, the first reason is just that this case is dumb. You know, this case is about whether if you squint really, really hard at a 1,000-page bill, 1,000-page law, so you only see six words of it, that you can make those six words be the only words that count. That's what this case is about. And and, and you're you're explaining it in a very – thank you for doing that for me, lay for us (laughs) in turn. But but legally, so that people understand, the Supreme Court justices are deciding – because, you know, people can read it in the news. But to hear somebody like you who knows the Constitution, Mm -hmm. who who has a passion for this – you wrote this book and i mm. know because i keep putting off writing a book how difficult <laughs> and how time consuming and how stressful and aggravating writing a book uh, can be mm-hmm. that you have to have the passion uh, and to have it on this issue so explain to our listeners what they ri- i mean what the decision comes down to for the supreme court sure so legally the issue is that every case or every state has what's called a health exchange and right. sort of like travelocity for insurance where right. you go on <laughs> like and you that. can see all the different <laughs> options that for insurance plans you can buy um, and some of those exchanges are run by the federal government. Some of them are run by the state government. The law says that the state gets to choose. So they, they, the word that the law uses is flexibility. They get to decide whether they want a state-run exchange or a federally-run exchange. And there's supposed to not be a difference between the two. The plaintiffs claim that if you happen to live in a state with a federally-run exchange, and that's as many as three dozen of them, mm-hmm. Um, you are not eligible for tax credits, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of tax credits in total, that help people pay for their health insurance. And if you're not eligible for these tax credits, well, first of all, there's just going to be millions of people right away who lose their insurance because they can no longer afford it. There's going to be millions more people who lose it because, you know, insurance companies have to worry about their balance sheet. And if they assumed that they were going to have all these people who are paying customers who suddenly have to drop out because they can't afford it, they're not going to be able to afford to insure as many people as they otherwise would have been able to. Um, And, you know, they might might not have enough healthy people to pay for all their sick customers who cost more to insure than they bring in. Um, So that's what's at stake. Um, the legal theory, um, if you don't mind me being Mr. Lawyer for at least 30 no, seconds No, no, I don't. Yeah. I'm going to ask you something first before sure. you go into the legal theory. And, and this is based on what? Why, why would it be – because this is not right. a constitutional issue. Right. So why would it be, can we dare say, illegal right. uh, for me uh, to get – a tax credit. There are plenty of tax credits even when people file the returns. You, right. get, you know, you get a credit, you know, for or a income, you get a right. credit for, uh, you know, or a credit or a deduction, you know, for children and, and you know, for, for various assets. I don't know. My accountant does all that, but right. I do know that there are tax credits right. uh, and not just for corporations. Right. And corporations are people, I understand, these days. So According to this Supreme uh, Court, So, so why... Why can why is this an issue that the court would even look at? What you know, what is the issue within the issue? Right. So it comes down to six words, at least according to the plaintiffs. Um, there's six words that appear in the formula dealing with how much of a tax credit people get. Those words are established by the state. And they say that a state is not the federal government, right. and so if you live in one of the ex- one of the states where the exchange is run by the federal government, your the amount of the tax credit that you get is zero dollars. That that's their argument. 
The problem with that argument, there are actually lots of problems with their argument. First of all, the word exchange is defined elsewhere in the statute, and it's defined in a way that deems any exchange, whether it's run by the state government or the federal government, to be the exact same thing. They're both exchanges established by the state. Mm -hmm. There are various provisions of the law that become absurd if you read the law the way the plaintiffs want to read it. So the the provision dealing with who can buy and who can sell health insurance in these exchanges refers to the state that established by the that established the exchange. So if an exchange established by the state is only the state run ones and not the federally run ones, what that means is that no one is allowed to buy health insurance in a federally run exchange and no one is allowed to sell health insurance in a federally run exchange. Why would we have these things in the first place if no one was allowed to use them? Um, so, the, you know, like I said, this is a question about whether this is a case about six words or whether you have to read the whole law to figure out what it means. Mm. And what the Supreme Court has said over and over again is that you have to read the whole law. Even the most conservative justices have said that over and over again. So does this come down because it's not black or white? It's not a thumbs up, thumbs down, yes or no issue. Um, does it come down to thumbs up and thumbs down based on those six words? Is that how the Supreme Court, um, you know, has the choice to decide? Or, you know, because sometimes it can be, uh, you know, we have a problem with this. I mean, the Supreme Court can't say change the word. Right. So I think the one thing to take away, because, you know, you read a lot of the stuff that's out there in the press, and you think this is between like, oh, there was this typo, and the law doesn't say what it's actually supposed to do, and can the Supreme Court fix the typo? That's not what the case is about. The law, if you read the whole law, is clear. You know, it's written maybe in a more complex way than it needs to be. But there's only one way to read it. And, and, and the one way to read it is that when you read how the word exchange is defined, when you read what the other provisions do, it becomes clear that all exchanges are exactly the same. So if the justices follow the law, if they read the whole law, then, it, then they're going to say there's exchanges in all 50 states. The the only reason why I'm afraid they might do that is, of course, because partisan politics are the way they are, and there's five Republican justices and only four Democrats. Yeah, truly, when it comes down to that. And, and obviously, politics is the reason they took this on, because this is not a constitutional issue. It's, I mean, it's not unusual for them to take a case involving how to interpret a statute, but they did take this case so prematurely. I right. mean, you know, we just didn't think that they were going to take it when there wasn't a, a, a disagreement amongst the various lower courts. That and the four that it. wanted to take it are four of those Republican judges. Almost certainly, yes. Okay, so in, uh, your, I, I want your bet. We're not going to Vegas. How, you know, how's this ruling going to come down? I mean, I think that it is slightly more likely than not that we win. I think that that it is above 50 percent. There's an above the 50 percent chance that the tax credits get upheld. But I don't I'm not much more certain than that. Wow. Thank you, Ian. I hope you're right. We have with us uh, the Reverend Cynthia Abrams. Uh, Reverend Abrams, thank you for joining us. Reverend Abrams serves as Director of Health and Wholeness and Special Advisor to the General Secretary of the Board of Church and so Society of the United Methodist Church. In that capacity, we're in a Methodist building, This is aren't our we? building. This is your building. <laughs> I'm thank upstairs. you. 
Thank you. Thank you. We're sitting downstairs from uh, from Reverend Abrams' office. In that capacity, she administers U.S. health, global health, and addiction prevention public policy advocacy for the United Methodist Church. Born and raised on and near the Cattaraugus Reservation of the Seneca Nation of Indians in western New York State. Uh, she moved to California as an adult. I live in Cali, and I lived in Buffalo, so I know both. And uh, <laughs> earned her Bachelor of Arts degree at the California State University at Long Beach in broadcast journalism. I have a degree in that. And her Master of Divinity, which I do not hold, at the Claremont School of Theology. Very, very good school. Uh, A clergy member of the United Methodist Church. She served local churches uh, in the 90s, a member of several national United Methodist Church agencies. And from 99 through 2003, she served as the executive director of the National United Methodist Native American Center. Um, First of all, so that people understand... um, Obviously, your role as Director Health, Wholeness, and Special Advisor to the uh, General Secretary of the Board of Church and Society of the United Methodist Church is to direct and to advise. But what does that mean specifically uh, for that organization so folks know where you're coming from? Oh, yes. Um, well, we do education on health care to United Methodists. Uh, we help United Methodists to be active on these issues in the local area and na- nationally and internationally. Uh, both in an advocacy and policy uh, education type of work, as well as to be doing the work that they do at the local level to help fill the gaps. You know, sometimes I think people forget that when you have politics and a piece of legislation as large as the Affordable Care Act, that there are non-political players. And uh, United Methodist churches, you know, some people might say churches have political power, certainly, but that churches, whether it be the Catholic Church or Protestant organizations such as the Methodist Church, um, care about their congregation, care about the parishioners. And when you have legislation that directly affects Finances aside, you know, pocketbook aside, but the health, uh, the overall health of a human being, that's something that is right. a, a, an important matter and is a, is a matter of importance to you and to the to the church. Well, it's a you know, uh, it's a moral imperative and it's also an imperative for us as faith community as we follow the example as a Christian denomination of Jesus Christ. I use the example of uh, the story of the hemorrhaging woman in the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know. She touches Jesus' garment, which violates Jewish purity law, and um, he could easily have said, you know, this is someone I don't want to associate with. They've violated the purity law. Instead, what he does is he turns it on its head and says, "Um, who are you? And, And then begin and then heals her of this long time bleeding and and uh, at the same time reminds people that. These, this, these who we have treated as outcasts are also part of our society. So it's an example, a roadmap for us in our contemporary societies. We think about those people, the people that are um, affected by the Affordable Care Act and have received health insurance and who are receiving subsidies are people who have, you know, at one time not been able to afford health insurance. And so by leaving them out, we're leaving them out of the ability to thrive and be a part of our contributing members of our society. Although we have a practice of separation of church and state, the church certainly cares about what the state does um, to its people. Our you know, being that we're a Judeo-Christian nation or, you know, based in, and founded upon the principles of, does it surprise you in your position and, uh, you know, the United Methodist Church organizations that um, are religious in nature, that we have so many challenges to something that is there to help and to assist people with their health? Well, 
I'm not surprised anymore. Yeah. But, um, but I will say that um, oftentimes our politics and our secular daily lives can um, be obstacles to us looking at things from a faith perspective, especially in a highly politicized environment and a highly polarized environment, which is what we're where we're at right now and it's not you know we've seen the stories it's not really about health care because when you talk about the provisions without telling the name obamacare people really like yeah. the provisions right uh so what that says to me is that they've been persuaded by politics but if you begin to talk to them in some very basic language that they understand from a faith perspective you begin to have a more civil conversation and you can have a conversation that is more, if you will, top line above the fray. Right. And you can talk about abundance, community, humanity, stewardship, you know, that God cares that we're created in God's image and everyone's created in God's image. So we all should have access to things. We shouldn't have the disparities and inequities that we have in our country, the richest nation in the world. And so uh, all of those things are ways that we can sort of clear away the clutter of all this other stuff and so faith leaders and um, people in churches part of our accountability is to tell people and to help people have conversations to talk about this so that people can see it from that very basic essence of who they are as people of faith Reverend Cynthia J. Abrams, more than a pleasure, Director Health and uh, of Health and Wholeness, excuse me, Health and Wholeness Special Advisor to the General Secretary of the Board of Church and Society of the United Methodist Church. Thank, Thank you, you for very being much. with us. Joining us uh, now is uh, Dr. Arthur Lavin. He is Arthur Lavin, MD, FAAP, pediatrician in private practice. I have a six and seven year old, see you guys a lot, and an associate clinical professor of pediatrics at Case Medical School in Cleveland, Ohio. You know, there are a lot of physicians out there. Um, this pushback is a Republican push, and doctors are mostly Republicans. I mean, and uh, I say this because when I have people call or when former President Bush asked my husband to come to a dinner and I said we're a Democrat, there was just that long, silent, pregnant pause on the other end because typically, you know, doctors are Republicans. Your political ideology aside, there are a lot of physicians, though, regardless of their ideology, that realize the merit in this legislation because of the prevention, which is necessary. And you come at it from, you know, treating children. And you know, this is part of the problem. I and mean, parents run to the ER when the kid has a 99 temperature, they cut their finger, and that's not necessary, and that hurts the system financially. Well, you know, Leslie, first of all, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. Uh, you're right. Most of the doctors, the MDs who are in Congress, Senate, and in the House, uh, tend to be against Affordable Care Act, but not most doctors in the United States. Seventy-five percent of the physicians in the United States were in support of the uh, act. And why is that? Because most of the doctors who are actually seeing people like to see them live. And if you're insured, you're more likely to live in the United States. If you know what? That alone, that, that, that should be, seriously, that should be a caption. Headline. That is. That's, that's all there is to it, really. Yeah. You want to live longer? Get health insurance. <laughs> and we can play politics. You know, people need to get elected. People want to have their power. But doctors don't see it that way. Doctors really care about who lives. If the Supreme Court tomorrow leans, if one person leans the other way and Obamacare is overturned, 5 million people will be kicked off insurance and 10,000 people will die this year because of that. I think it's 8 million actually going to be kicked off insurance, Eight. which means more than 10,000 will die. Yeah, yeah. So that's a lot of people dead. Now, when, when, when you, are, you're in, you took an oath. Yes, I did. 
How do you respond if, in fact, the Supreme Court does throw 8 million people on the street, so to speak? What, what does that do to a doctor like you? Does that, does that mean that you're running into the ER more? You're having to take call to take care of these people? Well, kids are lucky. Is it even States. possible? I mean, is it just too many people and not enough health care providers in the ER in that capacity? Well, you know, for, most, for me, it's not such an issue because I take care of kids who are well-insured relative to adults. Right. But for most adults who are going to be disappearing, doctors aren't going to see them. They're going to be missing. Joining us first up in this hour is the HCFA's executive director, Amy Whitcomb-Slemmer. Ms. Slemmer, thank you for joining us, and welcome uh, to the program. I know you're not live with us in D.C., but you are on the phone. We're glad to have you. How are you doing? Good afternoon, or good evening, I should say. Well, thanks. It's very nice to hear you. Um, uh, You know... As the executive director, first of all, tell folks what Healthcare for All is. Obviously, the name would give it away a bit, but uh, tell folks what Healthcare for All is and uh, what your, uh, as executive director, what you aim to do there. Well, Healthcare for All is a nonprofit organization that represents the people of Massachusetts as we work for a consumer centered healthcare system that provides comprehensive, affordable, accessible, high-quality care for everyone and culturally competent care, and we pay attention to the folks who are most vulnerable. And here in Massachusetts, we actually passed health reform six years before the Affordable Care Act was passed. The ACA is actually modeled on the work that we did in Massachusetts. So we've been living with health reform um, for uh, more than eight years and, in fact, have the highest coverage rate in the country. So we feel very strongly about the provisions included in the ACA. I think I met you in person last year in D.C. I'm originally from Massachusetts. Were you here last year? Yes, exactly. You and I had a terrific conversation about your health care experience in Massachusetts. Uh, yeah, and uh, my mom's because she still uh, lives there. I live in Los Angeles now, but originally uh, from Mass. When Healthcare for All announced your appointment uh, as executive director, uh, you said, quote, I've been fortunate to spend much of my career working on behalf of some of our most vulnerable populations that you just spoke of. And I am grateful to have the opportunity to combine that work with my core belief that all people must have access to affordable, high-quality health care. You know, I mean, when you say that's your core belief, that's your passion. When you see what has happened in the state that you're in in Massachusetts and what's happened on a national level, isn't it frustrating for an organization like yours to get a green light to go ahead when legislation is passed, but when you have so many legal challenges, as we've seen with this legislation, it's almost like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't have a green light, I now have yellow. You know, in um, our experience, what we know is this truly is a fundamental social justice issue and an issue of fairness and equity. We know that people who have health insurance actually live longer than those without insurance. And we're very concerned about the decision and the arguments that will be heard tomorrow that may that, that threaten to undercut some of the fundamental pinnings that make the Affordable Care Act successful, making sure those health premiums and uh, the benefits are affordable to people who buy health insurance. It's interesting, you know, when we talk about that, that is, you know, reality. That is a fact that you're more likely to die if you're not insured. Remember those death panels Sarah Palin was talking about and everybody was kind of laughing at her saying the Affordable Care Act would be a death panel? Well, in a sense, the Supreme Court is going to be a panel, a death panel of judges for those that would vote uh, in favor of the plaintiff in this case. You're right. You know, as you described this case, it truly turns on the interpretation of seven words. It's almost like having a typo in the bill that needs to be um, fixed, but in fact would undercut the entire integrity of the bill. We know that 
the Congress intended for everyone who bought health insurance through a, a state-based or a federal exchange to be qualified for premium tax credits, to be able to have some supports as they pay for their health premiums. And as you say, the Supreme Court, it will rely on nine justices to decide whether they'll follow that intent or they're going to send us back to the drawing board in, you know, more than three dozen states. Well, also, I mean, when when you, if you, the whole reason this was, this legislation was brought about is to provide affordable care for people that didn't have care so that they could afford it. Hello, calling it the Affordable Care Act. And if the Supreme Court justices take away this tax credit, that will take away the affordability for these people. And that puts back the same obstacle that they were facing prior to the legislation, the passage of the legislation. That's right. I, I firmly believe that they will uphold this law. And why, do, why, do, and why, and why do you believe that, Pollyanna? No, no, why do you believe I, that, Amy? Uh, no, truly, because the law is rife with interpretation. There were days and days of debate on both the Senate and the House floors where this issue was never raised, whether they would discriminate against federal-based exchanges or state-based exchanges. It literally was never discussed. They have found a drafting error, and the opponents, it feels like a very cynical attempt to undo Obamacare. You know, there have been dozens of votes in the Congress, but the fact is this law has remained strong. In in Massachusetts, when you think about us as the canary in the coal mine, the support for this law continues because people now have health insurance and understand that um, they need it. It It's fundamental and vital to their overall well-being. And Again, we need healthcare for all feel very strongly that the same opportunities should be available to everyone in every state. The federal tax system shouldn't discriminate based on which state you live in. Now, you feel, and, and you have shared with me numbers in the past, that Massachusetts has uh, really done and, and made great gains. And, you know, you continue despite the fact that, you know, we had a recession and, you know, the economy dipped and, you know, now we are coming, you know, out of that and not just now, but, you know, we have been, albeit slowly. Um, I know that at Healthcare for All, you want to make sure that the gains that have been made, that have been achieved in Massachusetts on behalf of the residents of Massachusetts, uh, part of your work is that all of those gains are not undone uh, by finances. And obviously you can't uh, change, uh, you you know, we can't do anything uh, until tomorrow when, you know, the Supreme Court ruling. But, you know, if in fact this ruling comes down, this undoes this legislation entirely. And, you know, you're very uh, optimistic uh, that the court will do the right thing. And I certainly hope you are right. Um, But talk to us, the Supreme Court decision aside, um, have you you know, I know in Massachusetts, and, and let's talk about what can be done to prevent undoing of any of those gains that have been achieved and, and what you at Healthcare for All have done in order to make sure that's possible. Well, I appreciate the question. You know, I would never say that this law is perfect. I do know that with a 98% coverage rate, we have more people in Massachusetts have health insurance and access to care than and the other part of the country. And now we're working really hard to make sure that those benefits are affordable. One of the benefits of the Affordable Care Act was looking at the approach of supporting primary care and prevention so that we've invested our state dollars and some of our resources in making sure that people have access to uh, preventive care services. We know it's less expensive to prevent a disease than it is to have to uh, treat or 
to pick people up when they're in an acute stage of uh, disease or illness. So that's really important, making sure people have access to an annual checkup um, without having to incur a copay or any cost sharing. That's part of the Affordable Care Act. It's made a difference in Massachusetts. We not only have the highest coverage rate in the country, we're actually, by statistics, statistically the third healthiest jurisdiction, the third healthiest state in the country. Your organization, Healthcare for All, it's just in Massachusetts, correct, Amy? That's right. That's exactly right. Are there organizations state by state that you're aware of that may not have the same name or similar name, but that do the same thing that your organization does? Yes, absolutely. There are other consumer organizations in, I believe, now 46 of the 50 states. And our partner organization, Community Catalyst, um, uh, is a, a group that helps provide technical assistance and leverages the lessons that we've learned in Massachusetts in other state-based organizations. So if, if people are interested in getting involved, there are campaigns all across the country that are aimed at improving the health care system and making sure consumers and patients have what they need. Do you talk to any people in these organizations that are in states that don't have the Medicaid expansion and some of their frustrations uh, trying to get health care for all when they don't have the governor of their state assisting them with that? I do, and it's terribly difficult. We know the Medicaid expansions have made a life-saving difference in a number of jurisdictions. We also point to a couple of states with Republican and conservative governors who have decided that they simply can't keep their um, population from having access to health care. So, you know, Kentucky has expanded the their um, – they've taken up the Medicaid expansion. And I believe firmly that we'll see an improvement in health statistics, you know, within the next decade. Uh, uh, right now, other than what, you know, happens uh, tomorrow, what do you find to be – because we've talked a year ago, I mean, between a year ago and now – uh, the the biggest challenge is it the same challenge as the challenge changed over the past year. You know, one of the benefits we have in Massachusetts because we are eight years ahead of implementing this law is now that we have everybody in coverage, we're actually working on delivery reform. So we're beginning to talk about changing the fundamental healthcare experience so that we're not just paying for incentivizing more stuff to be done to patients to pay for procedures through kind of a fee for service setup. We're working on paying for outcomes so that our providers and the system is really geared to keeping us as healthy as possible. I believe, you know, hopefully you'll be talking to me in five years from now when we can talk about that part of health reform, that again, we've set the pace for the rest of the country. (laughs) Um, One over uh, the past year, maybe there's a story or two that you'd like to share. I think last year you shared a story with me uh, because you said sometimes when, you know, people call, um, or come in uh, to health care for all, you, you you get to put, you know, a, a face to, in a sense, what's a number on a page. That's exactly right. You know, every day, folks, we have a, uh, an 800 number, so the residents of Massachusetts can call us whatever the glitch is that they've experienced in the system, and we get in it with them so that health care for all is the last call that they have to make. And within the last two weeks, we had a call from a mother who's um, – child's health insurance card has been rejected. We were not at all clear why, but the child was ill, and um, the mom had taken time off from work and was waiting to get in to see a doctor. And the 
helpline, the counselors on the helpline were able to help this woman navigate the system, get her temporary coverage so that her child could be seen. And my understanding is two weeks later, her child was actually back in school. So a, a small victory, but again, peace of mind for the mom and good education for the kid. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, one of my best friends uh, thought she was happily married until her husband moved to Vegas and denounced he had a girlfriend and was getting divorced. And uh, basically um, what happened is he was supposed to pay um, for health care that he got for his job, if not for her, then for the daughter, because they were legally separated, but so they hadn't worked out the terms of a divorce, but he had to, by law, provide insurance for the daughter. He canceled the health care policy or took her off the health care policy. She went to the court and the court's like, you know, basically it's terrible, but they're like, well, he shouldn't do that. <laughs> He's not supposed to do that. And they try and drag him back into court, but you know, they're not going to issue a, you know, a bench warrant for somebody who doesn't pay their kids health insurance. So, uh, she didn't know what to do. I had just met Peter who, uh, worked at covered California while I was waiting to go on television at Fox. And he gave me his card. It happened to be in my wallet. And uh, I gave it to her. She called me up later that day, and she's like, "I'm insured." <laughs> and I said, "What?" She goes, "I'm insured, and I'm, insu- you know, I'm insured, and I-, I can afford it." And she goes, "And I'm not even on Medicaid, <laughs> Medicare, uh, excuse me, Medi- Medi-Cal in California with Medi-Cal." So, um, y- you know, I mean, that's just another, you know, example. I mean, you know, the deadbeat dad isn't going to pay it, but you know, uh, the government, the government is. Absolutely right. And, you know, Covered California is a marvelous organization, and that is what the Affordable Care Act offers for individuals uh, across the country. Uh, no, no question. What do you want to leave our listeners with today? Because, you know, it's it's really fascinating because, you know, I can just hear even in your voice that strides have been made just in the past year since we talked in the Affordable Care Act uh, passed, you know, it isn't this year. It's not like a year ago we were saying, what if it passed? And it had passed. Um, right. Spoke it has ago. passed. It has made a discernible difference to millions of people. It has saved lives for people across the country. And I believe the court will affirm the decision. And then we all need to get in the trenches and continue to make improvements on how we experience our care. So the next big fight is payment reform for delivery um, reform so that the system we need is in place for each of us. Awesome. Thank you for joining us, Amy. Sitting here live at the Families USA, the Voice for Healthcare Consumers annual conference. We are live from our nation's capital doing a remote broadcast. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court, where we are sitting across the street from, is going to be making a huge decision. Sitting before me is Mr. Steve Weiss. He is Senior Director of Media Advocacy for the American Cancer Society, the Cancer Action Network, out of our nation's capital here in D.C. He used to live in L.A. He was just telling me, though. Uh, more than a pleasure. Can I call you Steve? Is that Absolutely. okay? Absolutely. Thank okay. you. More than a pleasure, Steve. Thanks uh, for joining us. Um, cancer or cancer patients are often used as examples when people uh, talk about prevention, early detection, and why having insurance and that everyone should have insurance, should have coverage, uh, is key, especially when you're dealing with cancer. And I'm sure that you know all of the talking points. Um, but talk to us about that because this is true. This, this is a reality. This isn't just a soundbite. That's right. Um, when you get cancer and you go to a doctor and your doctor says you're going to need this procedure, you're going to need this treatment, you might need this surgery, Obviously, you're going to need a way to pay for it. That's where health insurance comes in. Uh, 
And if you have quality health coverage, you'll be able to get the care that you need to survive a disease like cancer. 15 million people in the United States today are cancer survivors. It's an eminently survivable disease in many cases. But if you don't have access to coverage, then you're going to have to find another way to pay for it. And and, yeah. not, and not just pay for it, but the options, right? I mean, do you know? Do you want to do radiation? Do you want to do chemotherapy? Um, do you want to have surgery? Um, do you want to? I, I mean, even some of the holistic options that are covered under insurance now, those are at your disposal. Those aren't if you don't have the coverage. And most people, unless you're very very wealthy, can't afford to write that check. We're going to take a break. When we come back, don't go away. Don't go away, because uh, we don't have the next person here yet. So we're going to keep Steve longer. I'm glad. I'd like to have him on longer. Uh, Steve Weiss, Senior Director of Media Advocacy for American Cancer Society, Cancer Action Network. Don't go away. I'm waking up to action dust. I wipe my brow and I sweat my rust. I'm breathing in the chemicals. And we're back. Senior Director of Media Advocacy Steve Weiss is joining us with the American Cancer Society, the Cancer Action Network. Check out their website, acscan.org. And uh, let me see. I'm not going to give an email, Steve. Do you have Twitter or handle for Twitter? Or are you the can- I, I do, uh, at scweiss2001. Okay. Check it out. Follow him there. I. Uh, you know, we were we were talking, uh, and I, I just want to say, I, I think I slipped and said that the Supreme Court is deciding, and they're not deciding, they have opening arguments tomorrow, but I thought it was clear that they're deciding this summer. Um, when you see legal challenges um, like this, do you get people panic-stricken? Do you get those phone calls from people who are panic-stricken who might have a child or a relative or they themselves are, currently have cancer, currently are in some type of a treatment program, that insurance is covering that they're afraid will be pulled out from under them like a rug? You know, when people first call, they're confused. Their first question is usually, what is this going to mean for me? As you said, I'm in treatment or I'm in a clinical trial um, or I'm about to get the procedure that I really need. Um, And once they learn about how this could impact them, it could mean that they don't get the financial assistance that they've been relying on. Then they get panicked, and then they say, how could this happen? And our answer is, it really shouldn't. The law was clearly intended to provide the financial assistance to people in any exchange across the country, and we hope the Supreme Court decides that way. Absolutely. I want to tell you a quick story. Sure. I I mentioned my husband's an orthopedic surgeon, and um, I have to be, because of HIPAA, uh, very uh, vague. Uh, But he recently had to tell a patient parents of a patient, so it's a child, um, that what he found um, was osteosarcoma. Now, you know what that is. Sure. And uh, it's cancer. And she has options. This young girl has options. Unfortunately, one of those options is amputating the leg from the hip down. But that means living. How long? We don't know. She has to have more tests done with cancer. It's complicated. I can't even imagine... As a parent of two children, some that phone call. One, two, got to see other doctors, got to have other tests because you got to know. Okay, is it spread? Is it metastasized? Is it you know in the with the with um, uh, this type of cancer in the bone? It spreads through the you know bloodstream, so it can be found you know elsewhere that may not be readily apparent uh, via an X-ray or MRI. I can't imagine a hearing that. B decision whether to tell the child or not. C, 
all the additional doctors and tests. D, to make that decision. What decision do you make? Do you, do you amputate a young you know, girl's leg or you know, what, what do you do? And then on top of it, to, to not, to, to say, oh, God, my little girl's going to die because I don't have health care. I need to have a car wash. I need to sell my house. I need to do everything I can to make sure my daughter lives. I can't, I can't fathom that. No, I, I, and, and no one should have to. No, we hear from people all the time. We heard from them a lot more before the law than when the law went into effect because people were getting coverage. But people who face those exact same decisions. And anyone who's had cancer knows fighting the disease is hard enough. Dealing with the treatment is hard enough. So having to figure out on top of that, as you say, how am I going to afford this? Is, a, is, is, is something that no one should have to go through while they're fighting for their lives. And everybody says that, you know, whatever illness, cancer as well, because it's there's some unknown. You know, we, you know, some people say we all have cancer cells and why they grow in some and don't in others. But yeah, my, my husband, who's an orthopedic surgeon, he says stress has definitely got to contribute to these things. So to oh, add stress to a person who's already suffering um, for, from something that doesn't, ha- not always, but most of the time doesn't have to be fatal if you can get the right care and early treatment, right, and preventative treatment, which you need insurance to do. Steve, you're awesome. We'll keep you in our Rolodex and have right. on again. All Thanks right. very much. Uh, Steve Weiss, uh, Senior Director of Media Advocacy for the American Cancer Society at Cancer Action Network. Once again, that's acscan.org. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Our next guest is also here as we sit here live in Washington on Radio Row, and this is Ms. Karen Hines. Uh, Ms. Karen Hines is a three-time breast cancer survivor, and Karen understands the importance of having quality health coverage. Well, Karen, you were sitting here with an earshot of what I just said, and I could see you peripherally nodding your head um, because you've been there. You've had that phone call. Oh, I have. I've had that phone call several times, and then I had the phone call telling me that I have one of the genetic mutations that predisposes me for more breast cancer, but also other cancers, uh, one of the BRCA yes. genes. So it is a terrifying thing. And I did go a few months uh, without any health insurance. I was uncoverable because I had a pre-existing condition. Um, and so I had the end of 2013 before, thank God, uh, the Affordable Care Act kicked in, and I can't be denied uh, insurance because of a pre-dis, uh, pre-existing condition. So that was good luck and yay for the ACA. Um, it's made it possible for me to have insurance. Uh, having the insurance, did that save your life? It did not. I had it. It just. I am at such high risk for future cancer that I need to have. I can't go without coverage. It would be ridiculous not to. Um, but to, so, to turn somebody away because you get a bad gene, do oh, you inherit a bad gene? To me, that's that's not humane. Uh, no, I don't think it's humane. Um, I don't think it makes sense. Um, I, I used to volunteer at Duke Medical Center in the children's pediatric unit. I worked for Duke, um, and so I was nodding about your story with the child who was diagnosed with osteosarcoma. Um, because I have seen parents who have had to have barbecues and uh, rides and things like that trying to raise the money that's just, they're forever in debt. 
you know. Now, with the ACA, at least we don't have a maximum where they say, right. okay, you're out now. Um, or the pre-existing kind of condition. Right. To, 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 you know, I, I, I've always said that if the Affordable Care Act saves one life, it was worth legislation being passed. It's and it's going saved, to save a lot of lives. It's, ha- it's probably saved lives already. I mean, we've heard, you know, stories like that. Well, I'm being treated for a thyroid condition that I didn't go get taken care of because I didn't have the extra bucks. I've been paying off bills. So with the, under the Affordable Care Act and getting into the health care marketplace, I actually did some routine care that I should have been doing. So now I'm being treated, and I am, you know, my body's going to be a lot healthier, and I'll last longer, and I'll be less expensive to the country. <laughs> I mean, the, the Affordable Care Act is, uh, I believe in it for the humanity part of it, but it makes good economic sense, too. It does. If you let people get sicker. Then when you finally do have to treat them and they show up at the emergency department or somewhere else, it's a bigger bill for everybody, and it's a waste of human life. I always say pay so, pay now or pay more later. Right the now. subsidy that I'm on um, is, is a lot cheaper than the care would cost for my mother. To, my mother has dementia. Um, she was diagnosed in the middle of my chemo treatment. And so I've been helping her. She takes full-time care now. If I have to go back to work full-time at a place with benefits, my mother is, I'm not going to be able to take care of my mother. She'll have to go into a memory care unit, which is not the care that she needs at this point, highly expensive, will drain her the rest of her savings. She was a school teacher, retired. Drain her savings completely, and she'll end up on Medicaid. That's a lot more expensive than my subsidy. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court's going to be hearing arguments, which comes down to six words that could leave eight million people without insurance who can't afford it without the Affordable Care Act, but specifically without the tax subsidies in the Affordable Care Act, although the decision will come in the summer. And you don't have to answer this because it's personal, but since you're being so personal... Will you be one of those eight million? I will. I think that I can hang on for mm-hmm. a period of time, but I will have to get full-time employment that provides health benefits. I can. I am 59. I can tap what retirement funding I have. I can tap that to keep my health insurance, but that's not going to last forever. Well, that shouldn't be how it is. You shouldn't have to tap into. Your retirement fund to pay but for your health care. But I feel lucky because at least I am able to do that. There are so many more people who don't have savings to Correct. pay for that premium. John Ahrensmeyer, join us next. He's used his long experience as a business owner to build small business majority into a nationally recognized small business organization and the leading advocate for critical public policy issues facing America's entrepreneurs, particularly health care, clean energy, access to capital, immigration, financial reform, and numerous workforce issues. The organization is focused on ensuring small businesses' success is a critical component of our economy. John Ahrensmeyer, more than a pleasure to have you with us. I'll tell you, uh, actually, let me tell you a little more, because he was founder and CEO of ACI Interactive. They're an award-winning international e-commerce company. Uh, Information Week named ACI Signature Product as one of the nation's top 100 e-business innovations, and the company was cited by the San Francisco Business Times as one of the top 100 fastest-growing private companies in the Bay Area. Also, a frequent speaker on small business policy issues and a regular guest on TV and radio, including MSN. 
CNBC's Your Business, PBS NewsHour, Fox News, where I am a contributor, Bloomberg TV, NPR's Marketplace, MSNBC's Hardball with Chris Matthews, and the CBS Evening News. And in 2009, he served on a panel at the White House Summit on Health Care Reform. He testifies regularly before congressional committees and has briefed White House officials and congressional leadership on small business policy issue. He also serves on the Association for Enterprise Opportunities, Economic Impact Council, and Microcapital Task Force, and he recently led a study group at Harvard's Kennedy School of Politics. He serves on the board for the Insure the Uninsured Project. More than a pleasure to have John Ahrensmeyer with us. John, good afternoon or uh, evening here on the East Coast where I am. Uh, Good afternoon. Good to be on, Leslie. That's a very generous introduction. Well, thank you. It's your you or your people that gave me that. <laughs> I didn't do that off the top of my head. I've never met John before. Uh, but John, you know, one of the things that those uh, people on the right who are opposed to the Affordable Care Act, even though it's been passed and they really are trying their damnedest to change that, uh, and tomorrow, as you know, Supreme Court will hear arguments once again on an aspect uh, of this law to t- try and defund, derail, repeal, replace whatever they can do, uh, Republicans. One of the arguments they constantly use is that this legislation hurts business, specifically small business. Uh, being that you have such an ex- experience as a business owner and uh, you know, being that you've served on the board for the Insure the Uninsured Project and, and just your background, uh, can you speak to that? Because small business owners I know haven't folded up shop and gone home based on this legislation being passed. Well, I mean, Leslie, as a former small business owner and as the head of an organization where we spent the last five years reaching out to small businesses um, across the country to educate them about the options available under the Affordable Care Act, I can assure you that um, what we're hearing back is that the Act has provided many more options to people. Um, it's no longer the case that you have to worry about getting health care from a big company um, in order to make sure that you and your family are protected. You can actually go out and start your own company. You can join a small business, and you can get quality, affordable care um, on the exchanges um, via the Affordable Care Act. So any any effort such as is going to be the ca- uh, would be the case if the uh, uh, King versus Burwell were to uh, were, were to be upheld. Uh, would basically be um, would pull the rug right out from under the opportunity for uh, 28 million small business owners and their employees, uh, that includes self-employed people, to get coverage um, and to get quality coverage and to have that coverage be affordable. I want to talk about those who are um, small business owners, uh, you know, themselves, the entrepreneurs, because there are people out there that you know, say, well, that this is hurting that segment of the business population, the, entre- the entrepreneurs, people that, you know, started up, in, you know, their, their own business, and they're not only self-employed, but often self-insured. What is the temperature out there among the entrepreneurs? Um, does this, as some would say, um, you know, restrict the amount of people who will venture out into starting their own company into into being an entrepreneur? Well, actually, quite frankly, it's the contrary. I mean, but prior to the passage of the Affordable Care Act and all these options that are available, um, you could not um, be guaranteed getting health coverage if you went and started your own business, uh, you became self-employed. Uh, you, if you wanted coverage, either you or your partner or spouse would have to uh, stay employed at a larger company that offered coverage. So um, now we've removed that link between health coverage and making economic decisions to, to, to take an entrepreneurial path, 
and that is much more pro-entrepreneurial. There are just a vast number of, of greater options. If you're self-employed, going to the individual exchanges where these subsidies do exist and having affordable coverage is completely available to you. If you're a small business owner um, uh, or an employee and you don't happen to offer or get health coverage at the workplace, you can go on the individual exchanges as well. So this has really created many, many more options. It hasn't stopped. If, if business owners still want to offer coverage to their employees, they can do that. It hasn't changed anything. And from a cost standpoint, actually we've seen the increase in costs uh, you know, come way down from regular double-digit increases every year to a fraction of that um, going forward. So not only are there many more options for businesses, um, but, they're, uh, but they're much more um, affordable. And let me just, just say that when we're out there talking to business owners, while they, they come in to the situation having heard bad things about the law, once they realize what the options are, um, they're very happy and they want more information. So unfortunately, politics um, have gotten in the way of the pra practicalities of just looking what's, uh, at what's there and what's available. Is there a messaging problem, do you think, John, from the people that have the truth versus the people that are spreading the fear, especially in the business community for small business owners and, you know, those people that want to enter into uh, their own business as entrepreneurs? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, we found that just stating the facts, um, you know, really gets it across. I think the problem is when you've got a, a lot of money being spent by a lot of um, folks and organizations to just get out there and demonize the law. And, you know, look, it, it's a change in the system. So, you know, business owners and self-employed people have to adjust and have to understand what their options are. And if they're simply being told this is terrible, uh, this is going to, you know, create chaos, this is not going to allow you to have coverage, you know, they get scared. And unfortunately, it does require a group like ours to come in and say, hey, here are the options. We'll put it out on the table, let the facts speak for themselves. And once we do that, we find that, uh, that there's much more receptivity. So there's really, um, you know, there's a definitely disconnect between sort of the, the noise that's out there and the, and the reality. Speaking of the noise that's out there and, uh, you know, that disconnect, um, what are people telling you when you do meet with them? What are some of the fears of these business owners? Well, first of all, they all come in thinking they have to provide coverage if they're a business owner. And the reality is only people over 50 employees have to provide coverage. That's only 4% of all businesses, 96 of which are already providing coverage. So immediately off the bat, people come in with, 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 with the wrong information. Secondly, they come in not understanding the options, not understanding that, gee, they can offer coverage to their employees and there are tax credits available and there are additional exchanges available for small business owners. Or if they choose not to, they and their employees can go um, get coverage with subsidized coverage on the individual marketplaces. So um, really, uh, that, that's really, um, uh, that's really the, the, the biggest challenge we have is just to make sure people understand what's out there. Uh, do you think that overall this makes a better employee with your experience in business? You know what I mean? If, if a person feels valued, they're apt to produce more? Well, absolutely. I mean, first of all, uh, from a cost standpoint, it used to be that small businesses and their employees paid 18% more for the same coverage as people in big business. We don't see that anymore. But more importantly, people will people who want to work as entrepreneurs, they want to become entrepreneurs or they want to work in small business, they have the option to do it. You know you're getting people there who want to be there, 
because they've made an economic choice to be there as, as opposed to working for a larger company. Um, and, you, and you have a watch, you know, the, the whole recruiting um, issue goes away where you don't have to be competing against uh, big businesses who offer fancy health plans because uh, a lot of the same benefits are available to people on these exchanges. We want to thank you for being with us, John. Really appreciate you taking the time. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery.